welcome to Breaking the Pain podcast, where we will smash through some of the issues that coaches and sports individuals are wrestling with. In our second issue, we welcome Russell Earnshaw and Dusty Miller to discuss ex-pro players transitioning into coaching and coaching pathways. First up to introduce themselves, take it away, Rusty. Oh, wow. Well, thanks for having me, Jess. Uh, And that was uh, an excellent introduction. You have a you have a, a, a beautiful voice. Well done. Um, uh, Rusty, uh, Russell Earnshaw, um, um, not quite sure what I do, work with coaches, work in business, um, having a bit of fun along the way. Used to coach a bit in rugby, so coached with England Sevens and with in the pathway with the 18s and with John Fletcher, who I now work with. Um, was a teacher for two years, uh, played a bit of rugby, um, lots of different chapters, I guess, in my in my book so far. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to hanging with you and Dusty, really. Next up on the pod, we've got Dusty. Take it away, Dusty. Hi, I am good to see you all. I'm Dusty, nice to meet you. So I have spent uh, the large majority of my time in the military. I exited the military, started working for England Rugby um, in a couple of roles in there, predominantly with my feet on the green stuff, supporting coaches to be the best version of themselves, which was great. Uh, and I now find myself working at the English Institute of Sport, um, helping individuals be the best version of themselves. Uh, and that tends to be working in and around the support staff space, um, hopefully aligning the performance of sports to the performance outcomes that they wish to get for their athletes. So good to be here and good to be on here with Rusty and you, Jess. Sweet. So let's get cracking. So I think I've got to issue a disclaimer before we start, and that's whilst I am passionate about the topic of coaching pathways and the the topic of ex-pro players transitioning to coaching can be quite heated at times, I'm quite biased um, in the fact that I'm not an ex-pro player. I'm trying to forge a coaching pathway for myself and trying to sort of navigate that and sort of see what it looks like. So when I see ex-pro players that are seemingly easily transitioning into the role it can sometimes bring a little bit of sort of discord or discontent into my brain so just sort of get that bias out there before we start I just want to open with the first question which is we've seen a lot of ex-pro players transition into high high profile coaching roles Um, and I'm just sort of wondering what benefits do you think that brings to the game and are there any downsides and if I can start with you first Dusty on that one um, that's a great question, Jess. Um, from my experience of supporting the uh, player-to-coach pathway from that space, uh, the benefits are the understanding of the technical aspects of the game and certainly their position-specific and their understanding of the environment as well. They, they bring a lot of experience from that space. Uh, but it's important to know that, that that's always from a player lens rather than a coach's lens. Um, and I know a lot of the clubs at the moment are, and I think of Bath, I think of Bristol as two that I used to work with quite closely. They do spend a lot of their time encouraging their younger pros to get out into the local community and get some coaching experience under their, underneath their belt if that's what they want to do and they see a future in doing. Um, so they're, they're the, some of the benefits. Of course, the disadvantages are is they, um, they don't necessarily see the game through the coach's eyes while they're in that space because clearly they want to be playing each week. And so sometimes there is a, a perceived ability to coach based on their experience. So that would be my, my kind of short and sharp answer. Um, yeah, no, I think um, there can be, some of the experiences that people have had can be valuable part of a coaching team and that might not just be success. So you could be a journeyman failed ex-player like myself and actually that might be useful as well. Um, yeah, I think it's um, it's considering the makeup of the coaching team. It's thinking about that transition to being a coach. There's clearly some different skills. There's whole you know craft around learning and creating an environment and understanding. Yes, micropolitics and and and, and actually the coaching as opposed to the tech tech stuff. I think uh, I think where people would probably get frustrated and, and, and I definitely understand that is when it's just not done properly. So there's no kind of real robust recruitment. Um, 
So, you know, people are putting out jobs that are saying, you know, you have to do 12 months of commercial experience just to, to narrow it down to one candidate or, or, or not even advertising, quite frankly. And I mean, that would be my challenge to lots of organizations is if you really, really want to get the best talent, then kind of leave it pretty open. You might actually be intentional around your wording. So we've previously chatted about, do you want to attract kind of cognitive diversity? And that might be male, female, that, you know, that could be anything really, then be really intentional around the wording so that it doesn't scare people off and it invites people in. And then, and then be just really robust with your recruitment. So there's definitely some people who were given jobs over lockdown who, I mean, some of them were players and no one's seen them coach. I mean, I think that's quite strange, quite frankly. I would think you would. Um, that wouldn't happen in too many other walks of life. I'm just sort of wondering why, is there a reason we can pinpoint why that is? Does it come down to trust? Uh, do hiring committees think that players are more likely to trust coaches who have been ex-pro? Or is it down to affinity bias? Do we get hiring committees that are ex-pro players and top of the game so they're only going to hire somebody that that looks like themselves and that will that will cut out other people um i guess my view quickly is that um yeah trust would be a big part of it yeah if you want to work in a team you're probably thinking i can bypass some stuff by bringing in someone i know well clearly there's advantages to that there's disadvantages in terms of that kind of cognitive diversity um I think the reality of, you know, people aren't necessarily in positions for really long periods of time. So they've often got to get results quickly. Um, I'm certainly aware of some places and I do a bit of work in football where it's probably even more pronounced where the reality is the owner wants someone with a name um, and, and that's influencing the hiring decision, which once again is pretty strange, but I, I guess... Um, uh, one of the things I, uh, when we did um, a webinar with Kevin Bowring recently, he spoke about was actually almost one of his regrets was that he didn't quite get up to the kind of CEO, chief exec level as much as he would have liked because often the decisions are being make and made there. So I actually was interested when I, I did my Telegraph piece the other day and it was on Twitter, I actually got um, a message off Stephen Vaughan, who's the CEO at Wasps, and actually we had a bit of a discussion around, I actually think they've done a real good job of, of the coaches they've appointed and actually how they've supported them. And Lee Blackett would be a great example. I mean, he's, he's learned his craft in the championship where, you know, there's, there's definitely something on it, but it's, it's not the end of the world. He's got some stuff wrong. Uh, they've put some other young coaches around and, you know, those guys are really keen to learn. They've got coach development plans. They invite people in to come and observe them. And so I think that's a really good model. And I'm, I, I sense and I hope I'm right, and Dusty might, might be able to fill us in on, on some of the Olympic stuff as well and how that looks. But my sense is, you know, you start to look around the Prem and there's definitely some more younger, uh, probably hungrier um, coaches that have had some, probably some better learning journeys and hats off to people like, you know, Kevin Bowring and, and Nigel Redman, who've, who've been a big part of that. Yeah, there, there, there are certainly uh, across a lot of the a lot of the sports that I work with, and there's an, there's an understanding that that to try and get a different lens to view. Now, there are there are certain aspects that 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 the sports want, and obviously a lot of those are the technical, tactical understanding. But it doesn't necessarily have to mean that the coach has experienced all of that themselves as a coach, as long as they've got the ability and and the cognition to be able to um, inspire people to do things they don't necessarily think they can do and create good, high quality learning environments and coaching environments for the athletes. I think that goes a long way to develop um, the outcome that they want. Now, if we go back to uh, sort of, you know, players transition out of playing into the, into the uh, coaching environment, Often you'll see them treading the boards, if you, you know, if you want to use the term, treading the boards out in the academy setup and in the DPP. They'll be in there, but they're often coming in doing guest sessions with little or no responsibility, but opportunities to coach. And so what they get is the opportunity to coach and be challenged by uh, uh, interested players who really want to challenge their thoughts 
but they have no responsibility associated with that. So what we try and do, uh, and certainly when I'm working with them as a, as a developer, is try and challenge them to, to challenge themselves to seek support from other environments. I think if we could go back to sort of looking at, at hiring for a second, is there anything specifically we can do in hiring to diversify coaching at the top of the game to get more of a male-female spread, to get people from different backgrounds? So if we, if we go take a step back, Jess, I know, I know a couple of years ago, um, Andy Webb, one of the coach development officers at the RFU, Phil Cairns and Nick Scott when he was in post, they, they took a positive step into the space of trying to encourage uh, females to access the level three and level four space. And part of that was a, was a, was a conscious effort to support a number of female coaches in that space. And I think that that was a, a bold step to take at the time and was met with some derision from the game because it was favoring the females. But the reality is it was a real bold step which took some real scaffolding and support in that space. And I can think of one person that supported in there, Neville Jeffrey, I think Rusty, you supported in that space. I know a number of other coach developers that helped out and really took the opportunity to, to give that um, opportunity for learning in a different way. Because prior to that, it was everybody applies for a role on the course. And if you're lucky, you get on the course. So, of course, by being really, really specific and stepping into the space of developing, what, we got, what we've got now is a cadre of female coaches who are in the level three, four space and beginning to really have those opportunities for stepping into the, into the hiring roles, as it were. Any thoughts on that, Rust? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's about giving people some experiences. I think it's about putting some expertise around them and supporting them. Um, I think it's about generating connections because I think that's critical. I, I agree with you, Jess, I think there's a mindset shift that might need to happen and it's interesting isn't it Stu Lancaster's doing really well and um, back in 2015 we were probably all hoping Lanny did well because he was a teacher turned rugby coach and we thought oh wow it's like you know the good old days you know the, the Graham Henry or people like that so um, and yet he's doing remarkably well now fair play to him um, and then uh, and the same there's a bit of that with me with Chris Boyd you know he's a pharmacist till he was 31 and and someone suddenly does something, and it's probably the same way. And, and from a female coaching point of view, you know, you've, you've got to see it to be it type of stuff. So, uh, so we just need a couple of people with appropriate support, appropriate people around them to actually progress through, show what's possible. I know lots of pretty good um, coaches. And then I guess on top of that, it's like, it is the process. So it's the hiring process. I think me and you just chatted about, and, and you know, I'm, that people see adverts and, and most men would back themselves and, 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 and apologies for generalizing, but, but the reality is the statistics would say women are less likely to back themselves and go, actually, I can't quite do that. But just having better language around it or, so I, I think a good example for me was a um, football job that was advertised recently. And, uh, and I said to the guy, Oh, could John Fletcher do that job? And uh, he said, Oh yeah, yeah, he could do that. I said, well, why are you asking for a UA for B license? If he could do the job, then there's no point. So probably just thinking a bit about, you know, being more intentional with that. And look, I've been fortunate to do a bit of stuff with people like the 30% club who are trying to get more female uh, um, people involved in boardrooms, which, you know, you only have to look at the governments around the world and there'd be some uh, reasonable correlation between women being in charge and, and success and um yeah i mean they they're just there are ways you can do this it might even be as simple as having a female on the interview panel so you know i've had a lot of interviews in sport i can't off the top of my head think of a single one where there's been a female in the room apart from from a hr point of view yeah, I mean, I have to say, you know, if I think about my experience at EIS and UK Sport and I look at the role models that are within those two arenas, the CEO of UK Sport is a female, the chairman is a female or chairperson is a female. 
and then and then across that across the directorship across the senior leadership team and leadership levels there are females all the way through and BAME as well and so they're taking a conscious step into that space and it's the right people in the right job at the right time and I think rugby has got some way to go undoubtedly got some way to go but you only have to look at Giselle Mather as a as a as a as a quality coach uh, Lou Meadows as another quality coach. Hannah Edwards is a young coach coming through on, on the pathway. Louise Dennis is another one. And you have to look at that. So those role models are out there for us. And so we're not far away. Joe Yap over at Worcester, you know, we could, we could reel them off. They're there. They're there for us to step into. But it's whether, it's whether the game, the male side of the game, is ready for those coaches to step in. Of course, Lou Meadow has done as the under-20s counties coach. So, so it's... it's, 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 it's we're, we're there or thereabouts, I think. I can't speak for the pro game. Obviously. Yeah, I'm just, I was going to say, I mean, obviously I work across sports as well, so I work in hockey and be really similar. Lots of, you know, coach, de- you know, people who are female and in coach development, lots of, a lot more diversity would be my view in terms of people and, and, and thought, quite frankly. It's just, it's just a little bit more normal in hockey than it is in rugby. Um, I, I also keep remembering the the rowing program that they've got on at the moment over in British Rowing, where they're encouraging female coaches to come forward, even if they've got little or no experience in the program. They'll get a couple of quid to be part of the annual program. They'll get a ton of development. Do we need a program like that in rugby that's not level orientated? That's just right at the start of the game. That's just pure coach development. And if so, what do you think that would look like? Yeah, I think we've had some of that, Jess, to be honest with you. I think the Inner Warrior camps were were, were, were that. They were obviously about getting more females into the game. Uh, but I know the support that the community rugby coaches and the rugby development officers put around that was about giving, the, giving those new and um, uh, newly qualified coaches or new to the game coaches experience of coaching opportunities. And again, I go back to my time in the Rugby Football Union when we were recruiting coach to, um, uh, rugby education workforce. We made a conscious effort to go out and identify uh, females to come into the coach development space to help us help others. And so we, we went on a, on a try and I think we got somewhere like 30, 35 females with good quality coaching experience, not necessarily from rugby. But although they played, that was great. But they stepped into the space to be coach developers as well. And I can, you know, and I can think of a number of good quality uh, females in that space as well. So that's also something the RFU have done in a positive way. Yeah, I mean, my experience is in hockey. <clears throat> so Demi Dowley works in coach development. She runs a female coach program. It's got a much better name than that. I can't remember it. And it's, I guess it's part of the diet for the, for the people that are on it, um, it kind of range of experiences. So, you know, people like Kate Richardson Walsh, who's, who's done all right for herself as a player and is now coaching. And someone I work with, a lady called Wendy Russell, who's down in Hove, who coaches community level, really. And so um, what have I noticed? Um, both both groups learn. So Kate learns from Wendy and Wendy learns from Kate. Uh, I've, I've learned that it's really empowering. Uh, that actually, and they value that space where probably there's no annoying men like me there. Uh, but it's part of their diet and it's it's really intentional. I think um, Demi does an amazing job with it. Um, yeah, and, 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 and adding on to Dusty's list, you know, Anastasia Long, Nolly Waterman, Tamara, you know, actually for having spoken to some of those coaches uh, during lockdown quite a lot, um, I do think um, being more intentional, either from a RFU point of view or it's uh, something we're considering from a magic point of view, uh, would be um, would be helpful for them. They would they would crave that support. It, it's funny if we go back to because I keep coming back to hiring. I often think or debate to myself whether I should take my name off my CV or have initials and whether that would make any difference to the roles I'm applying to. Um, and I keep, I keep debating with myself whether it would make a difference. Um, and I don't, I don't quite know what, what the answer is there. And I'm, I'm sort of, and I'm also conscious that 
as a coach that's come from sort of grassroots up, didn't I played rugby, but it wasn't, I've represented my university, but, you know, and, and it wasn't at a particularly high level. I'm sort of trying to look around to see what other pathways there are for me to go on, to try and latch myself onto, to sort of try and, and I, I hate to words, use like top down words, but to try and sort of crawl up the ladder a, a little bit or to crawl a, along. Um, and I'm sort of struggling to find that. Would it be helpful? A, what do you think about removing my name off my CV? And B, would it be helpful for coaches out there if there was a more identified pathway or a branch sort of structure where they could go, if you're starting here at, at grassroots, have you thought about going along to this route? Have you thought about going along here? Have you thought about doing some guest coaching different clubs? Is there a way where we could outline a little bit of a system or pass for people to try and, and follow and explore? I think Justy should answer it, Annie, because uh, you're probably doing that better across Olympic sports would be my view. I, I would imagine you've got more of a framework for that than, than we currently have. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I don't necessarily work in that space across across the uh, Olympic programme. But when we were talking, or when Jess was talking and introducing that question, my mind is my mind is thinking that we, you know, it, a lot a lot of opportunities come through experience, and you know, and and it's the age old question: how do you get experience if you don't get the opportunity, and vice versa. And so. And so I guess I guess the challenge is 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 how do you how do you help coaches make themselves available, and at the right time in the right space, and so, you know, as a coach developer, I think I'd be sitting on the space encouraging anybody that I work with to be the best version of themselves. As a coach developer, I would be co-creating opportunities with the individual that I'm working with, and often that might be a reach out into my network. It might be a conversation where what opportunities are afforded to you uh, but the idea being is is if that's a goal of yours for a three to five years what steps can we take short term to work towards that and that's and that's how i encourage anybody that i work with in that space so uh, because you, you can't rely on a freight a framework to take you up up the ladder to use you know the words that you use jess because um you know, top down, bottom up, whichever way you look at it, it it's all about um, connections or, or as Rusty and Kirk talk about quite a lot, those ca casual collisions that you have. And when you have those casual collisions is what do they mean to you and how do I re-engage with them thereafter? Yeah, I've been writing some stuff down. Uh, <clears throat> be careful what you wish for, Jess. I'm not sure I'd want to be a full-time professional performance coach they don't have uh don't see uh see that their loved ones as much as they'd like i would agree with dusty connections i think there's opportunities to to grow your your craft and to, and this is for anyone really and grow your craft and grow your network around dpp pdg stuff so you can have lots of good examples of people that have that have done that great opportunities to coach abroad so you know, Phil Llewellyn went over to Canada and, you know, that they would be a country that I've been to and maybe it's because their, <clears throat> their women's rugby teams would probably beat their men's team, quite frankly. Um, and um, <clears throat> loads of amazing female coaches over there. <clears throat> I was really hoping they were going to kind of um, tip the balance and take some female coaches to the World Cup uh, rather than bring in a couple of people for... For, for an experience for, for other coaches. Um, and it's, Nolly obviously works in the kind of centre of excellence type space. So there's, there's definitely always opportunities around there. And I think my advice, and I, I think we chatted about the other day, um, uh, Jess would be just be really intentional. So maybe go, look, I'm going to create myself a menu of options, 12 months of experiences, you know, one or two a month that are going to really be impactful and uh, help support me developing in the areas I feel like I need to and and maybe one of those areas is growing your network maybe it's confidence maybe it's some of that stuff as as well as your on-pitch stuff but that would always be my advice to people and and I guess where it takes you who knows I, I, I just don't think a pathway exists Kevin Baring I remember would have a very kind of 
he would have a, a, a big overview of all the coaches in rugby that were there or thereabouts and look at them kind of potential against performance and and sometimes some of them would progress through and sometimes they wouldn't and you're often at the top beholden to results and owners and, and other factors. I guess my advice to anyone would be just control what you can control and, uh, and, 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 and grow your craft. So I'm just wondering if you think lockdown will bring any long-term changes to the game in terms of playing style or different coaching methods. Obviously, I think it's brought some short-term awareness but I'm wondering if that will feed into any actual long-term change um, I think I think the way that NGBs will approach the formal opportunities for learning will predominantly stay digitally based and those opportunities to have um, uh, programmed in development sessions where there are there's a little there's, a, there's an element of priming some sort of information and then a webinar of such or a discussion breakout room or so on and so forth and then maybe a consolidation out in the field I think NGBs will adopt that so that will change how how NGBs help coaches um, as for as for changes within the game uh, I'd be quite interesting to see that actually I'm not I'm not 100% sure what I think um, you only thoughts, Rust? Yeah, I mean, we, we've got some pretty forward-thinking people in hockey, so Stu Guys, I think he discovered Zoom in about uh, December last year and realised it was where we were going to be going and we went down much more of a community of practice route where mm -hmm. it was less kind of didactic probably and more, more problems of people encountering and how can we support and how can we grow networks and attach people to one another and um, I think uh, it's it's done that. Uh, there's been more uh, ability to connect with, you know, quite frankly, some amazing people. We've all had some conversations over lockdown we never imagined we'd have. Um, and I think people that have been uh, innovative and some of the stuff, uh, Joe Wimpenny started a podcast at uh, Oxford Brooks where the players kind of interview each other and suddenly you find out more about people. Um, so I think there's been definitely been some disruption uh, and some rules have been broken and we've innovated some new stuff. Um, I'm always curious as to how it'll transfer to the pitch. So lots of people with lots of ideas in their heads and probably our challenges to, I'm just speaking to a Southampton coach, I was lucky enough to kind of do a sense-making webinar with them and he was like, we needed that. Our brains were kind of full of stuff. I think the um, I think the challenge is that uh, when it gets foggy, when you go back, you might need someone around you to help you. Because um, if it goes wrong, you you may never try it again. So I think my um, I think my nudge to coaches would be: don't try twenty things. Try one or two. Stick with it. Like, what did you learn? Um, maybe iterate it and make it better next time. Maybe invite some people in or co-coach with some people. Uh, and as for the game, I think, you know, it's it's really interesting, isn't it? So the, the return for rugby type stuff has, has, has been a bit like Brexit. Like, some people are going, where are the scrums? Where's the contact? The kids will leave the game. And I'm thinking, yeah, well, they might be more skillful because less numbers on the pitch. Kicking's probably encouraged. It's a game of evasion. Some kids who are really scared of contact are going to be thinking, actually, I can show people what I can show. And hopefully some, some kids that are probably uh, over-aligned upon contact are possibly thinking this would be a great stretch for me, or at least their coaches should be encouraging them to do that. Um, it's something I've been kind of hammering on about for a while, but I just think we need a greater menu of options for people in the game. So sevens, tens, fifteens. 12-a-side contact, non-contact, mixed. So just started doing a bit of work with, with England Touch. And, you know, it's, it's like refreshing seeing a game where you can be 16 and you can play with a 50-year-old. And, and, and there's males and females on the same pitch. And um, I think it's pretty cool. And I think, uh, I think rugby's going to have to recognise that, well, 
I mean, we won't have any choice until probably 2021, by the looks of it, that there's going to be some different versions of the game. And my hope is that people embrace it. They see it for what it is. It'll develop skill. Um, yeah, and, and in the future, we might go back to some more contact. And we, start, we started this conversation today about pro players and the access into the game. And over the last 12 months, I've worked... Uh, so Dave Fraser from the RFU, he stepped into the space with uh, the uh, Rugby Players Association about putting on a level three course for uh, players from a remote. So, that, so everything was done online. Uh, that wrestled with some of my own personal beliefs, I have to say. Um, but I supported some coaches through that process. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to lie. Uh, if I could generate some time with them, with my feet on the green stuff, listening, smelling, hearing the session, seeing the session, smelling the session, I did. Um, and, and the reason why I say that is because we, 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 you know, the RFUs attempt to go online and, do it and deliver a course wholly online for the professional players. But the reality is they craved the support on the side of the paddock in, in the environment that they were in. Why? Because I can upload a video of myself coaching and I you know, use the words they, they, use, they, they use, which is, I can upload a, coach, a, a video that I'm going to coach, but I'm only ever going to show you the best version of me. I'm only going to upload the best version of me and I need you to see me what's and all. And if I think about, you know, one of the coaches that I work with, who I think is one of the best ex-player coaches that I've worked with from a coaching perspective, um, he, he is so hungry and thirsty to learn and he recognises that he was, he was an okay player, a good player. He had a number of seasons at Tigers, at Tigers but he, 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 have, he has a thirst for learning and learning off as many people as he can. So we put him in touch with the performance director from Rowan. He's had a conversation with Rick Shuttleworth, you know, just to name but two sort of connections that we've done for him. And the reason why I say that is because there are a number of players out there that get in our opportunities through DPP, through delivering sessions, that those that are really, really hungry to do well will potentially do well if, and it's a big if, if they buy in, and I want to say buy in, they, they, they recognise that they're just starting their coaching journey or they're somewhere along their coaching journey rather than coming there with a, a pot full of playing knowledge and trying to distill that playing knowledge into coaching, as you would understand, yes, of course. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's really important. I almost wish, and I come back to that sort of videoing yourself, and sometimes I'm not lucky enough to have a GoPro. Sometimes I'll record my audio in my pocket, or sometimes I'll do lots of videos of the players, and I'm very conscious that when I'm doing that, to always try and give natural feedback so that I can listen to what my own feedback sounds like. Um, but I think I'm, I would prefer, ultimately, to have somebody stood next to me because... Ultimately, I'm going to be biased to present, like you say, the best version of myself. Mm. Um, but equally, if you're walking up the pitch with me, you're going to see it from when I'm getting the cones out, from when I'm setting everything up, from when I'm sanitizing stuff, to when the players arrive, how I meet and greet the players. Yet if I'm recording, I'm probably not going to press record until the session probably starts, which is what, the first huddle or it might be the first game or the first warm-up. So I don't think you're ever going to see the full picture. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, Jess, you say that, you know, the, the, guys, the guys and girls that I've worked with, it's, it is always a sense-making conversation and, and it's always couched in that we're going to learn from each other. And in order for us to learn from each other, I'm going to have to come down and walk in your shoes, not, not stand in your shoes, but work alongside them. And so, and the magic happens in those informal conversations that you have around that, which is clearly what you're talking to there. Yeah, and I've heard you're excellent at sanitising the cones, Jess. So well done. Um, <laughs> I, um, yeah, look, it's uh, I agree with Dusty. Kind of any any of those support relationships will, will work both ways. But I think lots of the magic's happening before, like understanding how you plan, why you plan like you do, what's the stuff you think might happen, what's your intention, um, what do you do as you walk into the pitch, what do those moments look like, what happens afterwards um you know all of that is is part of coaching so uh yeah i think it's it's vital that we get on the pitch and, and hang with people really and then the challenge i guess for us is to kind of suspend our biases and beliefs and stuff and and look at it through a relatively neutral lens and 
probably ask good questions. Uh, I've, I've heard some great questions over, over lockdown and a stodder with, you know, what was your, why were you doing that? Where did that knowledge come from? What a question, Anna. Why did you tell me that when I was 45? Um, so I guess we're always trying to work out, you know, ways of just helping, yeah, both of us grow really through this relationship. Yeah, I mean, the philosophy, the philosophy that I try to go to in any of this people development space is around taking your mind as far as you can take it before we pollute it with mine. And I try and stay as true to that as possible because my, my, my sense is that the answer is, is in there. It's, it, in, in fact, nine times out of ten it is. There may be a time where, you know, where, where the person that I'm working with says, look, just, look, Dusty, just tell me. And that's okay, but I'll always follow up with a, with a right, okay, so you've got that little, that, that little piece of information. Let's make sense of it. What does it mean to you? Because that's my lens that I'm looking through. So, you know, take your mind as far as we can do before we start polluting it with mine is probably a, a mantra of mine when I talk and when I work with the guys and girls that I work with. That's really powerful. And I, I just want to sort of lead on naturally to my next question, which is everybody always talks about or the sort of standard question is which one of the mentors or people you've bumped into has had the most impact on you. And I sort of want to flip that for you guys because you guys have done mentoring. So which one of the people or are there any stories about someone you've mentored that's had a great impact on you and sort of that relationship has flipped or it's been sort of equals bumping into equals? Killer question, isn't it? That, that is I, can of, I can think initially that, I mean, look, uh, well documented but Kevin Barry and Nigel Redmond both had incredible impact on me uh, Kevin because um, he would make you feel a million dollars even though he was telling you you were uh, you had some stuff to get better at that's a rare gift um, Nigel because he is one of the worst swimmers I've ever seen and he now works at British Swimming I mean if you saw that man in Wellington Harbour scaring scaring families um, like a like the Loch Ness monster, um, but just his curiosity would be pretty, pretty cool. Um, and and it's been uh, I've just had I guess it's been interesting for me because a bit like Dusty, I now work across sports, so I am kind of a a naive expert. And they actually uh, did a conference the other day, the hockey conference, and they were on the chat box. They were doing rustyisms, and one of the rustyisms was uh, I know nothing about hockey, which I don't. So well done to everyone. Um, yeah, I've had a few kind of definitely like breakthrough moments with people where uh, one coach where we, I think we created so much, like I, I was debating driving back home from Lillyshaw because I thought I was going to die. Um, but actually it turned out well and they opened the door. So that's always my challenge. How do they open the door rather than I break in round the back? And for someone to go, Rusty, I need a bit of support with this, as opposed to Rusty, come over here, I'm going to punch you in the face, um, was really helpful. And I created probably a, a stretch that was probably a bit too much of a wobble um, on reflection, but actually it led to a good outcome. So, so it was easier when we, we connected it backwards and go, and, and that's what I meant to do type stuff. Um, but yeah, that's, I mean, that's always the thing that I'm thinking is like, how are we going to, you know, what's going to be the stuff that's going to just make them think a little bit harder about something or consider something or, um, so another question I, I love asking is like, so, you know, well, when you made the choice of doing this, what was the, what was your second choice? So what did you consider and discard? Um, and at that point, people often realize they didn't have a second choice. And they were actually doing what they'd always done. And at least if we have two choices, we have more than one. And, you know, so, yeah, I guess it's, um, yeah, I guess I'm still learning would be my, my thing. Uh, I'm generally looking at the players a lot when people are being coached as well. I'm just looking at their experience. That's interesting, Rusty. And the long answer is? Yeah, there's a long answer with, with no answer, really. I'm yeah, so... Uh, so the question was, uh, <laughs> who's mentor? Who's mentored me, and who have I learned from in the mentoring role? Is that right, Jess? Sorry, that is. That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the question so, I just answered uh, horribly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just thinking. Uh, so my, my mind immediately springs to you know springs to three people that 
that, that were, were really influential in how I got into this space in my transition from being in the military into, into the coach development space. And uh, uh, Will Feebry would be one of them. He used to be a coach development manager at the RFU. Uh, really, really did um, metaphorically hold my hand through that transition. I worked, uh, I first got introduced to rugby as the Navy rugby development officer, uh, probably about 15, nearly 20 years ago now. And so he was really influential. I look at Neville Jeffrey as, a, as the Yoda of coach development. Again, fantastic boat, insightful, and his gentle, his, his art of gentle persuasion was really, really, really um, influential in myself. Uh, people that I've worked with and mentored that I've learned a lot from, three names spring, spring to mind. Uh, Dave Sharkey from a couple of seasons ago, Teaching Sharks. Uh, great conversations with him, as you can imagine. If you haven't come across him, hit him up. I'm sure he'd love to do a podcast. Um, Jerry Hedigan would be another one that I've worked with out of Grasshoppers Rugby Club, an Irishman. Uh, worked with him this season, just gone. Uh, and again, his, his, his thirst for knowledge. I learned lots in our conversations with him. And finally, Matt Smith at Tigers, another, another guy. And, and it seems to be to me that I learn the most with those that are hungry to learn with me. And so that, that obviously speaks to my bias, but it also speaks to um, the, the exploration that we always have with all of those people around the unintended consequences of the plan. And I always talk to all of my coaches about, okay, you've planned this, but have you thought about what, you know, what might happen out the back of that? What are the unintended consequences? If the outcome is A, have you thought about B, C, D and E and ask the players about F, G and H maybe? And so, so because of that, what we end up having is real deep learning conversations because they are always trying to consider the what if or what about, or as I call it, or as it's popularly called, unintended consequence. So that's how I would answer that question. Slightly shorter than Rusty, but only just. <laughs> I'm going to um, throw you a slightly bamboozle question and ask you to give me a list of like three to five things, if that's possible. So like pens and papers at the ready. Obviously, you guys have both transitioned from rugby then into multi-sports or into different sports. So if you can list sort of three to five learning points that you've sort of gone on your journey or sort of three to five things you've taken from rugby into the multi-sport coaching careers, what would those things be? I'll give you a countdown clock. Cool. Well, just to clarify, I mean, we just had to pause the video then for, for 25 minutes while we answered that. If Dusty goes first, I'll, uh, I can then go, yep, I've got that one. Yeah, so, so thank, thanks for that. That's definitely a missed one. Um, Number one, and, and these are no in particular order, but just as they come to my mind or they did in that space there was uh, the importance of psychological safety amongst groups, the importance of everybody feeling safe and being able to bring the best version of themselves. And so that, that speaks to that and how the leadership group would facilitate that psychological safety. That would be one. Uh, the importance of learning cultures the importance of the humility of the uh, role leaders and the leaders within the group and all of the and all of the players or athletes in some cases the importance of the culture being a learning environment where everybody learns from each other and everybody can be vulnerable enough to learn off each other and that's okay that really does champion those divergent thoughts and practices um, the importance the importance of clarities of roles so if i'm in the role of the head coach that's okay. That's, that's the role that I have. But the humility to understand and the vulnerability to understand that we again all speak back to the learning culture. Uh, and then this is what I'm going to probably pull across from fencing. I've done quite a bit of work in fencing, thanks to Steve Kemp, who is the, uh, the coach development manager there. Um, that actually the, the technical aspects of the sport are really, really important. And in fencing, they're hugely important. And alongside that is to not forget those technical aspects of the sport but bring your best self to those behaviors of those tactical procedures technical processes in fencing need to happen but it's the behaviors that influence the success around those so that would be my go-to jess uh, stuff i wrote i didn't have i went i've probably gone slightly different uh, to dusty 
Good. Um, people. So I actually think uh, there's a real good <clears throat> community of people that want to get better in rugby. I think they're generally below the academy level up to transition. <clears throat> and they share and they're comfortable. Uh, and, and I think we've tried to normalise that in other sports. And they would often look to rugby as something that was was leading in that really. Uh, I think it's been useful to kind of take across some of the craft stuff, that, you know, replays and pauses and second ball and that are really irrespective of sport. Uh, <clears throat> one of the things we used to do on the 18s camp was invite people in before the camp and we'd then go and coach, like capture the flag with loads of different coaches from different sports. And I mean, no one's an expert in capture the flag, are they? Well, I'm definitely not. And, and I mean, maybe, maybe one day. Um, so that craft, <clears throat> I think cards has had a big impact on me. So actually, what's your end in mind? Hockey do this really well as well with, with their end in mind. And probably just getting coaches to reflect upon, you know, even if it's, I think it's a useful kind of lockdown exercise of, you know, piece of A5, what's coaching to you type stuff. Um, <clears throat> Co-coaching, um, it's interesting, I guess. We've often got more coaches in rugby than we do in some of the other sports. I work with a lot of hockey coaches, some of whom are, for example, are player coaches, and they don't have any of them. So they're playing and coaching. So um, so co-coaching, we've tried to uh, play around a, a little bit with that as well. Um, and then probably the last one that I've become really mindful of and has come really from Ed Hall and his work with uh, Marco and Aidan and Jimmy at the Fultons was just that ability to think about and maybe plan for, but also, you know, what if type stuff around interactions. So um, <clears throat> that'd be a big part of, you know, another thought experiment for me is if I can only have, you know, well, let's say in my day as a leader, it's seven interactions or in my coaching, it's, you know, an hour session and it's 11 interactions, but how can we have transformational interactions as opposed to just interactions that are kind of like Rusty saying nice all the time, uh, which would be one of my coaching ticks. Chat box Rustyisms, I hear. Yeah, yeah. So that was, I mean, it was, it was, a, good, um, it was a good mirror for me that halfway through a conference with uh, hundreds and odd people on, they started doing Rustyisms in the chat box. And at least I felt psychologically safe. Well, they definitely connected with you, my friend. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think one of my dust, dustyisms, if I can steal that, is uh, peel back the onion. So anybody, anybody that's worked with me will always say, "Here he is, peel back the onion." So that's one of those dustyisms. I don't know. Why, I don't know whether that's a good one or a bad one. Just going back to the ex-pro players transitioning into coaching. If you've got an ex-pro player that has very little experience of coaching. And I know all IDPs are, are different, but if you could include like two things or recommend two things for them to include on their IDP, if they're going from sort of player straight into a coaching role, what would you advise them to include or suggest they would include? My, uh, my, num my number one would be for them to uh, get curious and have as many conversations with as many coaches from as many envi environments as they can. That would be my number one. Yeah, I think I would take them out of rugby quick, quick shop. Um, I think, uh, to, you know, they'll probably, depending on, you know, their coaching environment. So, you know, if you were coached by Lee Blackett at Wasps, let's say, you'd have some pretty good practice design. I think you'd be pretty cool with that, that you could probably run a reasonable activity. Um, take, go and see other coaches and, and look at their behaviours. And I mean, that's the stuff that you're blissfully unaware of, possibly for a very long period of time. So videoing yourself, getting feedback, um, you know, co-coaching, asking them to notice some stuff um, <clears throat> would, be, would be critical for me. Uh, and maybe also kind of map what they think versus what it is. So I like Chris Cushion's framework around coaching behaviours and Ed Hall did a brilliant piece with it on, uh, with, uh, with, um, with Jimmy Ponton where he just looked at his behaviours for a session. So it was silence or positive feedback or hustle or humour or responding to questions or whatever it might be. 
but then also I think there's a real interesting self-awareness piece where you you try and work out what it is before you get the information so how aware are you of of actually what you're doing um and I think none uh, there's no time where that goes out the window more than match day mm. so I think what I notice is lots of people struggling because they still have that emotion they can't detach themselves they're they're not necessarily thinking clearly and as a result and <clears throat> there's a couple I, I saw last season ex-players who were doing a bit of work with academies I mean some of them were on the pitch like there's actually a match going on and you're like playing like second fullback um, and, and definitely talking more than the current fullback so I think a consideration for that as well to think about what are useful behaviours around match day and maybe maybe ask the players what, what they would want from you as well yeah, I mean that—that that was the that, you know that was the intended outcome for those uh, in-game, in-game observations in the old level three course that we did, which were take was taken out of this latest iteration of that, and I think that was important. I went along and watched Matt Smith uh, with one of his games, Tigers v Wasps, so Elsby uh, at the back end of the season before we went into lockdown, um, and, it, and it just reaffirmed all of my belief in in what I'd seen throughout the season of Smithy and how. And and how how measured and calm he is in that space. So that was really rewarding to do that. Um, the other thing I would put into that space there is is uh, have a number of thinking partners. Uh, you know, a number of those partners that you bounce ideas off, and then as a result of that, pay attention to who you pay attention to, and ask and ask yourself the question: Am I am I paying attention to that person because it's an echo chamber? I'm hearing what I want to hear. Or am I paying attention to them because it's discourse and, and, and challenge yourself in that space because of the discourse? So, so there, there are other conversations I, I would often, often have with coaches. I would use the players a lot. So, you know, that's, that's your biggest resource, really. They're experiencing your coaching. Coaching's a attributed concept. It's a bit like leadership. No mm. one can tell me they're a good leader until I speak to the people they're leading. Mm. Um, so, yeah, just use players they would have real awareness of you know so i chatted to an international player the other day in, in a sport and you know our huddles last approximately this length this is the order the coaches speak in um we don't the questions are very closed you know and that's fine if that's your intention and, and the players are really aware of it so they're not they're not stupid so how can you use them and preferably you know let's get people's super strengths even stronger and let's let's reinforce that but also sometimes you know we might need to hold the mirror up and go you know how many goalkeepers how many times did the coaches speak to you today all oh, right were there were there goalies in the session so that's been an interesting one for me because in football and hockey there's goalkeepers and like those people don't exist in rugby there's not this person that has special extra kit and sometimes trains separately and gets changed at a different time and in, in hockey terms you know it's it's upwards of 10 minutes to put on all your kit which is ridiculous mm. um i mean it can be done quicker especially if i'm timing um and um but just to understand that everyone's having a different experience so we can you know we can talk about environment so we can say oh you know we're it's psychologically safe well is it for everyone so that's the bit where I think we all go on those chapters of the of the book where, you know, we we start off and we're trying to coach, structure, and shape the whole team. And actually, later on, we realise that uh, probably the individual interactions that people value the most and that are the 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 impactful transformational ones. And so I've I've really enjoyed being in hockey and and rugby and going, wow, there's those people have a noticeable difference. I mean. Go figure. You're never ever at the end where everyone's celebrating a goal. When the ball goes in the net, your teammates say you let the ball in. I mean, you didn't let it in. You tried to save it, usually. But there's a whole different experience for one person on the team. And even worse if there's two of them. Because, you know, I think there's only, isn't there, like a record at the World Cup that they take three, three goalkeepers or something, but there's only one that one third goalie who's ever had a minute at a World Cup or something like that. But, 
you know, you're also often the person that's yeah. standing watching. And they did a great piece of work with Birmingham City where the analysts uh, decided that uh, the best way to get better players was to have better coaches. So they, instead of measuring the players, they measured the coaches. They didn't tell them. So Danny Barham, who's a legend, um, and the rest of the gang, then produced a kind of piece of paper for the coaches. It's, it's got no judgment on it. It's just information. These are the three players you spoke to to the most. These are the three players you didn't speak to in an hour and a half. Um, this is the type of practice you did. You know, and it's then just a question of, look, was that your intention to ignore those three kids? Um, was that your intention to... And the, the one that they do that's... I mean, that would be impactful for me as a coach. The other one that they did that would be impactful for lots of rugby coaches is how many interactions were individual, how many were small group, how many were whole group. My sense is in rugby, and, it, and, and I don't think photographers help us, because the only time everyone's in the picture is when there's a huddle. So they rush in and take the photo then, and then it gets put out, and everyone thinks huddles are the best thing in the world. I mean, they don't happen in a match. So, um, yeah, so that type of information was really useful for coaches. And it's definitely challenged my thinking as well around, like, so how can I do less... How could I have more impactful individual or small group stuff as opposed to, to larger stuff? Uh, I'm probably challenging myself at the moment to probably do sessions where I just don't have what people would term a normal huddle, quite frankly. Mm. I think that's where I, I loved going slightly off topic. I think that's where I loved stage B and I've wanted to keep some of the ethos of the, the stage B when we've moved on to the other stages because I, I loved it. I think the groups that I led, um, the feedback from them was, was good. Um, and it meant I got to have far more time with those players um, and have far greater impact um, and spoke to them in the small groups, spoke to them one-on-one. -on -one. So when, we've moved, when we moved to stage C, I put a, a message out in our coaches' WhatsApp group and said, I'm really keen to keep the ethos of stage B going into C because I loved it. So now we've got games and things, but then we'll have players that will be aligned to different coaches. So it'll take the ethos of stage B with small groups and coach-led groups, but it will sort of work around the larger games so those coaches will have particular players to go and speak to in sort of skill zones or in larger games, in sort of split teams. And I've, and I've absolutely loved it. It's meant I've get to have, I think, a far greater impact, even though I might only speak to like five players. But I know that when we have a huddle, that other coach has got those five players and he's having a, a good impact as well. Mm -hmm. It's having those small snippets of conversation that you, that, that, that you were afforded in, in, uh, in stage B. That, that allows you, so you think about those small snippets, you know, we would call that coaching on the run, wouldn't we normally? Those casual, those casual questions in the ear of a player during a, during a training session. But you also then, if you come up a level, you're encouraging all the players to have those casual coach, coaching conversations with each other in the game. And so they do, they, you know, they, invariably they do. And it's just cap capitalising that and giving them the encouragement to do that. Yeah, I mean, that would be a... Reflection I hear from a lot of coaches, no. more peer-to-peer -peer stuff, you know, in a small group, more coach-to-player stuff, more player feedback to a coach on, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, yeah, how do we keep that alive, as, as you've beautifully put it, Jess? I've also heard some lots of frustrated assistant coaches who's head coach, you know, probably got head coach on their back, is, um, is like, we need to start preparing for you know, matches, thinking, yeah, possibly. Maybe, not till, not till September 21 anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I've got one final question, um, which is probably a, a big question, but I don't think you'll need pens and paper for it, you'll be relieved. Um, which is, bearing in mind everything we've discussed in relation to sort of hiring committee biases, um, trust, wordings on sort of hiring documents and then learnings from lockdown um going forward so if we were to travel forward in time what does coaching look like in the next 30 years and i suppose most importantly who's doing the coaching um well i'll be 75 so um it won't be me coaching uh 
hopefully. I mean, who knows? I might still be able to walk. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I don't think you're ever going to lose the human element of coaching. Like, that's, I guess that's something interesting, isn't it? That as technology and we have all those type of advances, then I still... I mean, actually, I think we've used technology badly, would be my view. Some of the analysis stuff has led to some pretty significant mental health issues um, and, and, is, and is not that helpful. Um, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's a contact sport. It's human to human. Um, the best coaches will be the people that are able to do the human stuff. In 30 years, we'll probably have machines that will be able to coach people had to do the technical kicking stuff and go, you need to lift your arm one inch this way and you need to do this. And we probably already have machines that can do that better than humans, but they can't do the human stuff. So they can't do the, you know, the connection, the feedback, the care, the belief, all that stuff. So that, that the, the two other things I wrote down that I, I would like is I just want coaches to keep being themselves like, that, that's the other challenge of lockdown. I, I don't want anyone to come out of lockdown and go, well, I'm going to behave like Rusty, because quite frankly, probably get laughed off the pitch. Um, and the other thing is, I, I just think, you know, we need to listen to the players more. So actually the players being, owning their own decision-making, owning their own development, how can we create environments where that's normal? Um, those are the environments that, that go pretty well. Um, and I think probably for coaches just to, in 30 years, hopefully we'll be a bit more chilled out, but who knows? If there's more money in the game and more high-stakes stuff going on, then people will behave perfectly irrationally. So, um, yeah, that's my view, really. So if sport is happening in the way that we see it now, in 30 years' time, I hope it is, obviously, um, uh, the coach will be watching the game through the eyes of his, his or her player, uh, the players, through tech. Uh, they'll be getting live-feed information from the players' eyes. Uh, they'll be wearing tech that allow them to do that. There'll be uh, uh, feedback loops that are going in and out of the game if you're in the game environment that, that's happening for all of the players because they're wearing the tech that's able to do that. Um, and that's if we and, and and I think that's something that that could happen. Why would you rule it out? And if you think about a game like uh, American football, it probably already does to a certain degree. Uh, that's an assumption. I don't know that, um, but that's I can see that type of tech and coaching being done in that way in that live feed way and very very instantaneous feedback from the game through the eyes of I could select play I could select player seven and have a look through his eyes and I could look select player eight and have a look through her eyes so on and so forth that tech I think is going to come uh, I hope I hope it doesn't impact on our coaching in that way sport I think was going to move into the AI world <laughs> I just, you know, you look at this e-game, e-sports and how that's going. You've got to look towards that. The coaches are going to be the coaches of those players. So, hey, it's a, it's a leap. But, you know, who, who, who thought when we were looking at Back to the Future 25, 30 years ago and we saw hoverboards, uh, Nike shoes that did up and so on and so forth, <laughs> television screens that you could do that too. That was 30 years ago. When you look at it like that, why not? I, I really hope, in, in all seriousness, I think some of that could happen, but in all seriousness, I really hope that those, those human interactions, those human behavioural uh, piece, those, the, 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 the relationships, that, that's the power. I think what we're seeing currently is are, are a lot of players picking their coaches now, not necessarily in team sports per se, but certainly individual athletes. The, 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 the power is moving from the coach to the, to the athlete and the athlete knows what they want and how they're going to get it and they'll, and they'll work with who they want to work with. And that's a flip from where it has been in the past. Yeah, and I was going to say from a community point of view, um, what I'm hoping is that, and I'm definitely hearing it from some clubs, that we, we recognise what people have missed during lockdown. And that's human connection, that's belonging, that's being part of something else. Um, and they start to consider what's the purpose of sport. So, you know, rugby, hockey, football, they've all continued to exist without matches. And we still feel connected and part of it. And, you know, I, I was on a, 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 an online camp with the England women's 35 touch team. And my days, they were so excited and they can't wait to see each other. And, you know, they're talking about their shorts and 
all this stuff. And so I hope we, we don't forget that stuff. I think there's a potential, as Dusty said, for us to, be, to go away from that and forget about what it is to be human. Amen. What a brilliant note to end on. Um, thank you both for joining me on uh, Breaking the Pain. So thanks, Dusty. No problem. I've enjoyed being here. Thank you for inviting me on. Thanks, Rusty. Thanks, Jess. Appreciate you having me and great to hang with uh, Dusty. And we'll chat next time, guys. Bye. Take care. Cheers.